Hello, and welcome to a special joint episode of Wiki Voices and Wikipedia Weekly. My name is Drew Rova. I'm here from San Diego. I'll be hosting today. And we have a very large group. Uh, starting from the top with Mitch Azinia, who is doing uh, our, our voice hosting. Mitch, would you like to say hello? Hey, and you still haven't got my name right, may I point out? Mitch Azinia? Yeah. Is that? Uh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Andrew. Uh, I'm sorry, I should say Fuzzheado. <laughs> yes, uh, thanks, Drova. This is Andrew Lee, also known as user Fuzzheado, coming to you from Beijing, China. And we're really happy to do this joint Wikipedia Weekly Wiki Voices broadcast. And Tucker? Well, I guess I'm also coming to you from Wikipedia Weekly. Great to be here, coming to you in Meat Space from Vancouver, Canada. Yes, we are hosting the next Olympics. It's just great to be here. Awadawit? Uh, yes, hi, I'm user Awadawit, and I'm from the United States. And Brett Hillebrand? Yep, I'm user Promethean, I'm from South Australia, and it's great to be here. Thanks for coming. Danaman5? Hi, I'm user Danaman5, coming from the Midwestern United States. It's good to be here. Peter Simons? Hi, I'm user Peter Simons. God, you could never guess that. And I'm from the United Kingdom. And Sage Ross? Hi, I'm user Sage Ross. I'm coming from Connecticut. And Samuel Wantman? I'm user Sam. I'm coming from San Francisco, California. Seddon? I'm user Seddon, and I'm calling from uh, Wales in the UK, and it's nice to be back. Now, this is going to be tough because I've never said this name out loud before. Tell me if I get this wrong. This is Where Spiel Checkers? That's correct. And I'm from London. Oh, okay. And Wyan Hockey? I'm user Wyan Hockey, coming from Israel. Well, thank you all for making it here. Um, this is a, a big group today. We have only two items to talk about, but they're, they're big ones. Um, the first one to on the on, on their list today is about a legal threat from the National Portrait Gallery to a Wikimedian, primarily through his Wikimedia Commons activities. Uh, the National Portrait Gallery is asserting a copyright claim over um, duplicates of uh, older portraits that are in the public domain. And this is, uh, as far as I know, it's an untested area of law. Um, Andrew, yeah, I think you're pretty well versed in this. Would you would you like to fill in uh, what whatever I might be missing on that part? Uh, yeah. So this is an interesting case because I think the for several reasons. One is the jurisdiction issue, right? So what? really quite happened is a commons user um, used a script to actually pictures from the National Portrait Gallery website and under US law these very old portraits and pictures of them would be clearly public domain and any you know what we call slavish copies or you know just uh, pure reproductions of these would also be considered public domain in the United States through a court case called Bridgman versus Correll. 
basically saying, if you take a picture of a public domain work, that picture is also public domain. It doesn't really make sense for that picture to be copyrighted. Uh, but the UK law is a bit different, and as you said, a little bit untested. So the legal threat letter was there on several levels. One is, you know, the gallery said, we have the copyright. Number two, the gallery said, you copied our database, which is, uh, you know, there are regulations against that in UK and European law. Uh, I think the third one was you circumvented some copy protection measures or security measures, I should I think is the exact word. And the fourth one was breach of contract, meaning that you kind of uh, violated the terms of using the website, even though you don't necessarily need to click an OK button to enter the website. So the, actually the, the letter was on these four different levels, and I think the community has been buzzing for the last few days in terms of what to do, what are the merits of the case, and if you read the Foundation L mailing list and, and all these other mailing lists, you'll see lots of different opinions on where to go and, and what how to respond to this. So I think hopefully that summarizes some of the, the issue that was quite dense, there's four different parts of the letter. And who would like to hop in there with uh, with uh, observations on this or opinions? Oh, uh, what I, basically what I was going to say is um, is obviously the, the the main issue that probably the National Portrait Gallery has is is uh, applying a precedent that occurs in U.S. law, which was um, set uh, by a case I can't remember the exact name of it right now. And, uh, and basically what that case said was obviously that public domain works um, once uh, photographed, those photographs couldn't have any copyright asserted uh, by the authors, and therefore those images would remain in the public domain. Now in the UK, um, there is something which is referred to as sweat of the brow. And what that mm. basically means is that... Um, once um, a person or an organization puts enough effort in to um, producing a, a photograph or a digital copy in this case, then uh, it, it can be considered original enough that the copyright can be then reasserted by the uh, you know, um, organization or the person. Now, in, this is what has happened in this case, is that obviously the the National Portrait Gallery has um, invested a lot of money, and we're talking millions of pounds, uh, into digitizing their portrait collection and uploading this onto their website. And, and obviously that their concern is that the Wikimedia Foundation is, um, is extending and applying US law to a UK organization, which is obviously governed by UK law. Right, and I, I think what what the letter said exactly alludes to what you said, the sweat of the brow part. If you if you look at the letter, this is what it quotes, uh, or I'm quoting from it. It says, "We can confirm that every one of the images that you have copied is the product of a painstaking exercise on the part of the photographer that created the image, in which significant time, skill, effort, and artistry have been employed, and that there can therefore be no doubt that under UK law." All of the images are copyright works under Section 11A of the CDPA. And as you said, this is where UK and US law diverge quite a bit. In the US, basically, they don't have this sweat of the brow or, or uh, this provision in the law there. So this is quite a significant uh, point of contention here. Sure. It's an interesting point that obviously the images that we've put up onto uh, Wikipedia are something like 3,000 by 2,000 pixels. 
Now, it's most likely that these images aren't actually the um, full quality of the original images produced by the National Portrait Gallery. I know that uh, with um, the Australian um, museums that Wikimedia Australia have been working with, their digital copies are what they call the official view, are 20,000 pixels in width, uh, which is obviously beyond what anything that we would use. And essentially what they use these for is for insurance purposes, is that if um, an, a portrait was to be dis- uh, damaged or destroyed, they would use these um, very, very um, high uh, resolution images to be able to obviously repair and restore the images. So it, it, there's a high possibility that these images are actually reduced from what they actually contain in their own databases, which aren't online. But that's just a side point. Wait, why do we want to send by to ask a question? Yes. Um, you've explained two different uh, laws there. The UK has the sweat of the brow law, right, and the US does not. So I think that the question some people might be asking is, well, which laws apply and why? Why is the National Portrait Gallery saying that the UK laws apply in this instance? I think their argument is that because the servers, their servers, are in the UK. Whereas our argument is that the Wikimedia servers are in Florida, and therefore UK, I mean, uh, US law applies. Well, that's part of our argument, and it's not really our argument, I guess, but... um, Another foundation's argument, sorry. Well, I mean, but my point is it's not even the foundation's argument at this point because, you know, they're not the ones Mm -hmm. who've been threatened. But it's also not settled in UK law. So there's actually a strong case that even in UK law, the sweat of the brow sort of common understanding actually doesn't apply because the judges who ruled in Bridgman v. Carell also looked at UK law and they concluded that even under UK law, they would reach the same decision. Not that that has any validity in the UK, but there are some legal minds who have looked at the situation and think that the UK situation is not what the NPG says. Um, where Spielcheckers uh, has something to say about this? Sure. There's um, been a bit of discussion on the, um, uh, the, the email mailing list on this as well. Um, but our new Freedom of Information Act legislation, which came in about seven or eight years ago, and again is a bit of untested legislation, um, should apply on this because they are a public body. Therefore, the Freedom of Information Act applies. And as a non-lawyer, um, I can't be definitive about this, but I've read through the relevant bits of it. And, and asked a couple of questions of, of a couple of fellow Wikipedians. And I think there's, you can certainly argue that, that um, uh, there are some exemptions in the um, Freedom of Information Act for commercial information, um, but it may not well not apply for an organisation like this, which is its prime reason for existence is to make these pictures available to the general public. So arguably, we're helping them. As just a sort of to, as a response to that, I mean the 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 trouble that the um, National Portrait Gallery have is that their main asset is obviously their images. Now, for them to be able to release more images into the public domain, they have to uh, obviously be taking in 
um, enough money from the um, sort of commercial aspect that they do, where they they sell on images to users, um, is that the, the money from that effectively goes back into the organization to then produce even more digital copies. So in a way, even though we're helping them release uh, the images that they've already digitized, there is a possibility that by us putting these images onto our website and therefore making them freely available, that we are actually then affecting uh, the future operation of the National Portrait Gallery to, to, to function by uh, being able to use the money, obviously, to produce more. So it, it, in the short sure, term... but they're not yes, a commercial well, organisation. They're a, they're a public body that exists to look after these paintings and make these image, images available. And I believe they grant funded rather than having to. I don't think they even charge admissions. Mm. No, but um, they they do have not their their money that they get from the government doesn't cover all of their operations. They also have to uh, get corporate sponsors to um, help maintain the amount of money that they're taking in. And obviously, if that's not um, covering their their costs. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the their their financial status, or whatever. But actually, you know. may I just uh, step in here because I do have the figures on that. Um, they made uh, for fiscal year two thousand seven two thousand eight. They made three hundred seventy eight thousand pounds uh, from the sale of images, and uh, that includes. Uh, Things that are un clearly under copyright, as well as the the disputed copyright, and if I have the uh, if I have the numbers correct on that, that represents about 2.3 of the uh, of of their total. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's budget or income for that fiscal year, but it it's not. A huge part of of their budget, but it's obviously nothing to sneeze at. Uh, Drova, can I? I'll make a quick comment about this this basic thing that Seddon pointed to, which I think is very relevant. Which is, um, you know, I I learned a new acronym this week, which is GLAM: Galleries, Libraries, Archives, and Museums. And you know, I'm a little slow to this. I'm sure you folks in Commons and people working with Wikimedia know this acronym better. But these are cultural institutions that are usually non-profit or work in the area of preserving cultural uh, heritage. And this is a big question is, you know, as, as said and said, these folks who are, you know, historical archives, historical societies have works in their archives that are, you know, very big revenue generators or potentially very big revenue generators. And sometimes that's a bit at odds with this idea content that's out of copyright and propagating it on the network and this is a real general tug of war with these cultural institutions um, and I know that a lot of people use the term copy fraud for organizations or people who um, take works that are actually out of copyright but tend to assert rights or or um, press people to not copy stuff because the institution uh, at least gives off the aura of that they own this work. And I think copy fraud might be a little too strong a word. I think copyright ambiguity might be a little bit more neutral to say that the organization owns the physical copy of the work, although they don't own the copyright to the work. And 
and there's a lot of question marks on how Actually, the free it, culture movement relates to this. Could I could I step in there? Because there sure. is actually a law, at least in the United States, I'm not sure what the legal status is elsewhere, um, and and uh, th there is actually a form of fraud. Not if you don't just imply it, but if you explicitly and knowingly claim copyright over something right. that is in the public domain, even if you own the physical copy of it, if the the intellectual rights uh, appertaining to that have you know, lapsed into the public domain, and you know it, and and you uh, claim that you own those, claim that those rights exist and are your personal property, and charge for that. That is actually a form of fraud. It is very, very rarely uh, prosecuted, but it is actually under American law a, a type of criminal fraud. That doesn't stop right. large corporations from from asserting those rights, like in the case of Happy Birthday to You. The, the, they, they're challenging people who put that in their movies all the time and collecting royalties, even though there's a good case that they don't own anything. Um, as far as I'm as far as I'm aware, the song "Happy Birthday" is still under copyright, unless under the old copyright law, uh, at, at some point they failed to do the the necessary paperwork. Under the old law, where that became copyrighted, it's very it, it can be very tricky to keep things in copyright. But, everyone's, uh, afraid, everyone's afraid to challenge it because you're, you're taking on a very large corporation. So nobody's actually had the guts to come forward and say, you, you really don't own that, right? And well, I'm so not sure keep collecting I, their royalties. It's, it's news to me if they don't own it because uh, the last time I read about it, which was some time ago, uh, the, the rights that I was aware of were uncontested. It might be a little bit of a, a different example from the kind of thing that we're talking about more here. Right. Well, I, what if, Go ahead. well, I just want to say what I find heartening, at least in, in some ways, that um, the community has not simply just charged it and said, well, we're just going to do this and, you know, we're, in, we're for sure at the public domain. I, I think I've been encouraged quite a bit by some of the conversations saying, well, we don't want to really piss off the entire glam community. We want to work with the glam community. We want to convince them that this is good for glam organizations or potentially good and you know let's let's showcase some of the success stories and i i've seen folks from the norway and the german chapters uh you know post about how they've worked with institutions of higher learning and glam organizations and how they've embraced the whole idea of wikimedia copying their uh, archives and distributing them around the world so I don't think the the Wikimedia community has done a great job of showcasing some of these success stories. I think that would be a great first step, even if this case uh, doesn't turn out exactly how we want it to. There should be a win-win situation here because, uh, for instance, I, I've taken photographs that are posted on Wikimedia and I've been contacted by people saying, we'd like to use this, like one was for an ad in New York. They said, we'd like to use this for an ad in New York. And I said, uh, you know, and they wanted a higher resolution version. And I actually sold them the rights to a higher resolution version and donated the money to Wikipedia. But it seems like that it, uh, by posting low resolution versions of photographs on Wikimedia, we're encouraging people to go and get high, well, we can encourage people to go and get higher resolution versions from them if they need it. So it actually could improve their sales of those images. Dana Man had a comment. Uh, yes, I was going to say that I think 
that this whole episode has really been a kind of an example to me of Wikipedia's growing maturity in the sense that um, we need to be able to to work within the uh, the boundaries of existing institutions and laws to to further free culture. We can't kind of be the the radicals on the outskirts who are trying to do this. So I think really uh, it is a good sign that we are not just acting in total defiance. We're, we're actually attempting to work this one out. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it shows a, a certain level of professionalism shown by the, the community. I mean, obviously there were there were people who said, you know, you know, we should go to court and, you know, we should protest and start a PR campaign. But at the end of the day, I mean, if if one um, portrait gallery or one museum finds that they have a bad experience associated with Wikimedia, I mean, the 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 whole glam community isn't a big one. I mean, okay, yes, there are numerous um, museums, but the word would quickly spread. And I think that the fact that the community has turned around and said, oh, okay, well, uh, you know, perhaps we should start negotiating with these guys. And, and there have been people who have been saying that, oh, well, you know, our job, this is mostly uh, associated with commons, is that, uh, you know, our job is to provide the highest quality images possible. But at the end of the day, you look at the um, the, ar- the images from the Bundes archive from Germany. Uh, those images are only uh, 890 pixels wide, which in, in, in uh, sort of picture resolution terms, it's not very big. But it, the, the purpose behind what we're doing is, is not solely to provide the largest images. Our main purpose is to um, provide an informative service to you know people across the world. That is what our single purpose really is, and so you know we we shouldn't really um, put the the whole larger resolution as the first um, thing in our list. What the first thing in our list should be is to get this content onto the website so that it can be informative and show people. You know the, the the subject matter. Um, okay, I'm going to step step in here because people are waiting to talk. Um, what you wanted to uh, to play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, well, I was going to say I think it's worthwhile thinking about it from um, the standpoint of going to court. Actually, let's let's play devil's advocate. Let's think about it from that standpoint and what the benefits and drawbacks of that would be. Um, People were saying earlier in the converse, in the conversation that from the British perspective, these are untested laws. Would there be a benefit to going to court to teasing out exactly what rights people have and what they don't have, since we don't really know? Well, yeah, that would um, in some ways clear the air about the unclarity of the situation since at the moment everyone has said that they are untested so we could very well be in the wrong in UK law we could be in the right in UK law and the only way we're going to find out is by going to court so that's just my two cents worth. And Sage? Um, Well not only the unclarity of the UK law but I mean I also think that you know there's a time for um, playing nice, and there's a time for uh, picking fights. And the and one thing that picking fights does, just in general, is it mobilizes people. It gets people to pay attention to 
what the reasons are behind why you're picking a fight with this. And it, it's a way to get people involved um, that doesn't really have much of a parallel. I mean, all the time in, in you know, the classic sort of online community literature, um, you see, like, one thing that happens over and over is that communities will uh, draw circles around themselves and identify outside enemies, and that's a way of bringing communities together. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's destructive, but sometimes there's more benefit than harm. And Dana Man, you, you had something else to say here. Yes, I think it, it's a good point um, about the utility of defining rights. Um, but I do believe that it can be very dangerous because um, obviously if we pick a court fight, well, it might not go our way. And then, of course, the National Portrait Gallery would, would be against us, you know, angry at our litigating, and we wouldn't have the rights that we tried to get. So, I mean, I, I can see the, the opposing position, position, but I can see the danger as well. Uh, Fuzz Hedda, you, um, you would like, uh, I think you have part of the, uh, the, the letter from the National Portrait Gallery that uh, you were going to read off? Uh, yeah, I think, thing is, I think the signpost article about this really pointed out how long-standing this, uh, this uh, I guess, adversarial relationship with the NPG has been. Um, with the article noting that back in 2005 Wikimania conference in Frankfurt, Jimmy Wales actually mentioned the National Portrait Gallery in his talk back in 2005 as being a, a party that was having issue with the way that Wikimedia was doing things with uh, copying and, and propagating information. So that that's really fascinating to me. I, I was at Wikimedia and I didn't even realize Jimmy had mentioned that in his speech. Um, but in terms of the court case going forward, I think a lot of it is a good, is a good uh, point. What if we did let it go forward? And I think the interesting thing is the copyright case may actually be the easiest part of it um, because a lot of people have looked at it and said, well, if you really did have a, uh, a case go forward about the copyright issue alone, very likely that you might come up with this Bridgman versus Corel ruling in the UK. The problem is this particular case has three other things along with it that might be more problematic, which is the database right, uh, which seems to be uniquely UK European, um, the breach of contract, and also the getting around security measures. And what was interesting about this is that the NPG site gave you kind of a medium to low resolution picture. You could use this, I think it was Flash, correct me folks if I'm wrong, a Flash widget to actually zoom in high resolution and just because we've got such a crack incredible technology focus at Wikimedia in the community um, someone which I'll not name wrote a script to actually go in and automatically with with a you know a, a computer script zoom in on each of the parts of the image and put them back together and download a really high resolution version of the picture which kind of didn't make the NPG very happy so that was part of the uh, the you know, circumventing security measures. But the signpost article also did make an excellent point saying the Zoomify folks who do that product actually mentioned on the website, Zoomify is not a security measure. It's a way to give your users, you know, zoomed in portion of an image, don't consider it a security measure. So that part of the legal case, I think, might have some weakness for the NPG. But the database right and the breach of contract, those two things are still in jeopardy. And is it fair to ask an individual, not the foundation, 
to bear the risk and the cost of litigating that going forward. And uh, this is where you're kind of in a in a tough position. Whether what does the foundation jump in to help an individual, or does it still keep this kind of you know firewall between the fact that the foundation runs the servers and the community is responsible for the content, and there's a very strict wall in between because you need that separation to become a you know, an information service and the foundation doesn't get sued every day of the week at that point. That's, so that's a lot of baggage, but. One thing worth uh, <laughs> mentioning in that is that there's two basic different um, legal tactics that institutions are using if they want to, um, you know, keep control over the collection. One is assertion of copyright, sometimes creative assertion of copyright, or at least, mm. um, innovative uh, you know because to the best of my knowledge um and i'm not i'm, I'm not a, a a lawyer and i'm certainly not specifically versed in uk law but i'm used to the sweat of the brow um being applied to instances where more effort is put in than than uh than at least i'm aware of being used here for instance one of our uh, one of our editors, who lives in the UK, is one of the most prolific uh, individuals at restoring um, historic artwork. He works from public domain uh, works, but after he puts in, you know, 10 or however many hours, um, uh, carefully digitally restoring the work, he will then claim a sweat of the brow onto the restored version, place it under copyleft license, Strictly for the purpose of of requiring downstream users to credit the Wikimedia Foundation for their version of the work. I mean, he does it for you know altruistic purposes to make sure that the Wikimedia Foundation uh, um, doesn't get exploited uh, and that people realize that uh, you know this this came via that avenue and and via volunteers there. Um, but you know that that's a very high degree of of um, how would I put it, uh, labor to modify the copy. One other thing worth mentioning, since we're talking about the signpost, and, and I, I authored, I guess, most of this, uh, there's also an open letter from people who are working toward a cooperative approach. I know I've been describing, not necessarily advocating, but describing what the adversarial stands are. Um, there are, I think the Buddhist archive was mentioned, there was a donation of 100,000 medium resolution images last December from the German Federal Archive to uh, the Wikimedia Foundation. Since that time, their sales of high resolution images have risen very significantly, and that's mainly because the, the public has a better picture of what's in their collection now. Um, if you see something, uh, we, we put a, uh, uh, a, uh, a portrait of Chancellor Adenauer up in, in the piece. Um, if you see a, a historic portrait that you think is important, uh, you can then go uh, via the source link and uh, viewers have been purchasing high resolution versions. So they're actually making more money as well as the fact that uh, Volunteers are, are helping to categorize and, and enhance the data uh, that they have on their collection. So that's all very useful. Um, some of us are also doing uh, digital image restoration. Regular listeners to Wikivoices are, um, 
are aware of, of that I'm very heavily in, uh, involved in that. Um, a simple way of putting it is that a lot of slightly damaged artwork can be restored digitally and then institutions that are used to getting part of their operating income from sales can then turn that into posters and mouse pads and so forth and it very high resolution uh, very high quality uh, digital restoration services are not cheap but we'll volunteer that uh, as a way of motivating organizations to make these donations uh, to the Wikimedia Foundation. Is there anybody else who, who would like to discuss um, this topic before we move on? Brett first. Uh, I was just looking over some of the restoration works that have actually been done with existing artworks, um, some of which has been done by Derova and some by other people. And they are quite impressive. And to go on what Derova's um, saying is that restorations of artworks is actually quite an expensive area. And there is quite a, well, promising factor to actually establish this relationship between um, galleries and museums and all that and the Wikimedia Foundation to work together and it, it would be a two-way street sort of thing of course we would make no guarantee that if you upload this image we're going to restore it but it would increase the likelihood of us doing so and uh Fazeta? well i thought i'd just turn the question back on the panel or anyone here who hasn't spoken already i mean what do you what does the panel see as a possible immediate resolution for this case and long-term in terms of how the community wants to have a stance towards the galleries, libraries, archives, and museums community. And, and I, 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 we've talked about this a little bit on our Skype chats, but I'd, I'd love to hear other ideas or reinforcements of existing uh, things that have been mentioned. One thing t that's worth bearing in mind is that much of this material, the majority of it in most institutions, um, has never been digitized. Uh, we're talking 75 to 90% of total collections never having been digitized, in some cases not even having been fully catalogued. Right. So these organizations are under no legal obligation to even digitize and put up on the internet. If they get scared, um, it is very easy for them to say no. And when they do digitize, they have, a, regardless of any other kind of rights, they have a perfect legit, perfectly legitimate right, if they choose to, to charge for the um, services and labor involved in scanning and the, you know, the underlying cost of the equipment and so forth. Uh, and they can charge any price they want for that. Um, they, they can charge quite a bit of money for each copy, if they choose. So even whether or not one accepts their certain claims about intellectual property rights, the, the physical property rights that they have are substantial. And I happen to be um, one of the, the group that I, I think that rather than, I, I view this as a defensive brick wall, a lot of these legal arguments, and rather than um, attacking the brick wall, I prefer to go around it. You don't necessarily validate the brick wall 
if you give these institutions reasons to dismantle it themselves. And uh, their mission is to inform the public that's the same as ours. Most of them are um, nonprofits. We are a nonprofit. If we can find a way that it meets their needs and doesn't hurt their bottom line to accept that times have changed. This isn't 1985 anymore. We're not dealing in print copies for the most part. Um, then I think that they could be very motivated to work with us when they see different opportunities, but in some cases greater ones opening up for them. Well, one of the things is that you go and right now it's sort of a rocky, almost unknown relationship. We do have some relationships with some galleries developed, but maybe one of the things which needs to be a little bit more solidified and codified is what we're doing, why we're doing it, and explaining what's going on and maybe what we are just looking at is a communication issue. People, obviously they've got revenue streams, but as we've talked about, a low resolution copy actually sells a lot more licensing rights than having it out there and sort of have a one page information sheet or something like that so that you're not having this mystery us versus them and you're explaining rather than getting into this adversarial let's sue each other type relationship. Some of us who are working on this have actually been um, putting that to, together and uh, we could use we could use help improving it. Um, Seddon, you had something to say? Yeah, um, basically just uh, sort of uh, in response to what Talker said, uh, the Bundes archive, which is obviously one of the largest um, uh, releases of uh, archive images to uh, Wikimedia Commons, they actually had a 50% increase in the sales of their images following the release of the, their 300,000 images. So, um, you know, we, we have um, undisputable evidence almost that by working with us we can actually um, make, you know, museums and archives and galleries and libraries actually earn more than what they were in the first place. So sometimes by investing in the um, free knowledge that they give, they can actually get something back from it. And that's something that, you know, we really should um, make clear and well known to these organizations. And Sage had a comment. One thing that we should mention is that, um, especially in the US, a lot of institutions that have sort of accepted um, the copyright issue and that they can't claim copyright um, have taken a different tactic, which is to try to use co uh, contract law. Um, and this is the basis of the uh, breach of contract claim in the NPG case as well, um, to basically say that we'll let you use this image, but you have to agree that you won't spread it around. So basically a contract that says it's, you know, we have all the rights to it that copyright would entail, even though it's actually public domain. Um, and there is some question about the legality of this because I think somewhere in copyright law, it says that no other laws can sort of take over the role of copyright. Um, but it's a pretty common practice in the United States in, various GLAM institutions. Right. As far as I'm aware, most of those contract law assertions are not really tested, uh, haven't really been tested either, and who knows, that might happen. Okay, wrapping things up uh, there and moving on to um, 
the uh, the newly appointed council, and we have a, a, a the how would I put it the um, Wikipedia Arbitration Committee uh, a few days ago announced a council, we uh, an advisory council. We have one of its members here, and uh, a Wedowit, would you like to describe it in your own words, uh, what it is, and uh, and uh, explain what this is for the the group. Well, um, actually, I think there are two of us, right? Yeah, I'm also on the council. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, the way it was described um, in this statement was that it was a council that would, um, I believe, should we, should we read it off or should I just summarize? Um, advise um, ARBCOM and the community. And it, um, I think the part that has um, upset um, many people is the part about advising ARBCOM um, first. That part has gotten a lot of people upset as that has been seen as to extend the power of the arbitration committee. It seems like we're adding people to the arbitration committee. And the part about the advising the community, I think, has upset a lot of people because it has been seen as this a group of people that has been appointed without any input from the community. And um, I think that's part of what's being discussed at the many, many threads that have come about um, because of the appointment um, of, of this group. Uh, there are a lot of issues about did, does the arbitration committee have the right to do this? Um, what would this committee group of people actually be doing? Um, and how would it actually operate? And I think all those things, are, people are trying to discuss them, and it's gotten, obviously, very heated. Um, Sam, you want to add on to that? Well, I, I'd like to just uh, talk about the positive idea that was behind it, which is, I think, to get a, a focused group of people to discuss issues that are important to the community. And I think part of it is related to the signal-to-noise problem that's been happening where if there's any issue of any importance, you end up with thousands of people basically screaming at each other. So I think part of what was was intended was a, a forum of, of people to, to get together and try and discuss some alternatives. At least that's what I'm hoping it becomes. And uh, I, I, you know, we, we don't have any power, and uh, it's unclear whether uh, what would become of any of it. So I think the idea is just to, as an experiment to see what happens. Uh, I know personally I've tried in the past to, to get some interest in something like this and I haven't even had a clue how to begin to get the community involved in a centralized way to make, make decisions. Because there there's it's so scattered all over all of Wikipedia any time a, a decision comes up. So, uh, you know, that's what I'm hoping it becomes. It's some centralized way to, to manage and focus discussions. Dana Man? As regards to the question of whether ARBCOM has the authority or not, um, it, my sense is that, in a strictest sense, perhaps not. But um, it, it seems to me that at times ARBCOM has to step in because it's the only thing on the project that's really solid. I mean, it, the only structure is really um, by the community accepted and well-formed so that it, it, they don't act, then really 
some people would say, well, what will act? Who will act? Um, so it, even though I, I don't entirely agree with the way that this council was uh, created, I feel like we should consider the, the lack of uh, solid governance structures that we have on Wikipedia. Brett had a comment. Uh, I was just thinking that the assertion that Arvcom is completely stable is slightly off. Um, but I think the idea behind the committee is certainly meritable. And I think that there may be a need for it. Um, we keep coming back to this famous question of is consensus broken on Ian Wikipedia? And if it's not, then we don't need to fix it. Um, but I think it's the execution of this idea by Arvcon that has probably really caused a lot of, okay, hang on, what's happening here amongst all the members of the Wikipedia community? Mitch had a question. Um, there's, it's not really a question, but I'm going to bring up a point here. Um, one thing is that, as has been said, it's been poor, poorly um, started with no no opinion given to, this, to the people. I don't even know if we even had a bureaucrat involved in this at all. But also, to add on to this, um, the, I won't use any names in this, but the effects it's certainly had on the community has gone completely downhill. We've lost, what, four arbitration committee members in the last week because of it. And two have gone to, um, excuse me, inactive. But it's uh, it's obviously showing that the um, July, uh, not July, uh, December expansion of the committee is falling apart. And now we've got some very irrational decisions being made here. Uh, May I just uh, factually here step in and say that there were... Uh, there were two resignations from the committee and two um, arbitrators marked themselves inactive and also a few days before the announcement uh, a third arbitrator had uh, resigned from the committee. It's unknown whether or not it was related to this. If, if, if I know who you're talking about, he's back. Right. Dana-Man was uh, up next. I was just going to respond uh, to Brett's comment, um, and it, when I said um, that Arbcom is solid in a sense, I, clearly I didn't mean the membership because that's obviously not very solid, or um, the, uh, the way they work entirely. I just was referring to the fact that they're invested with some authority by the community, and I feel like no other body really is. And Samuel, you had a, a reply. Uh, yeah, a lot of people have been talking about um, fixing consensus and does consensus work? Should we replace consensus with other things? And uh, I kind of feel in all this that uh, we've never really tried consensus. That we, we, we do consensus for writing articles, which is uh, the, the, the basic edit process for writing articles. is a real consensus process that people are collaboratively trying to create stuff. But when it comes to discussions, I don't ever see that we, there's like collaborative discussions where people are making points and building on them and trying to actually collaborate on their ideas. It, it usually degenerates into a re request for comment where you have everybody stating their opinion and it becomes impossible to read. So I, I, what I'm hoping in all this is that we can actually focus on creating processes that, that, that use consensus. Uh, the consensus organizations that I've been in in the past uh, have, have always used facilitation. 
and we don't have any mechanism for facilitation. And sudden. This is of two points. Um, uh, two points that I've got to make. Uh, firstly, is with regards to um, sort of whether ARBCOM is broken or not. I mean, ARBCOM has never been this, um, you know, army made with gold-plated armor, you know, that will come from from above to solve all problems on, you know, the project. They have a very difficult job, um, and in fairness, sometimes they have to make decisions that perhaps are not um, not generally accepted by everyone. I mean, I'm not saying that I agree with everything that they've done. I, there have been many occasions when I felt that um, Arbcom perhaps hasn't acted with um, the correct clue or professionalism that I'd expect from them. But, you know, they have their reasons, and and the trouble is, is that every year we're never going to have, you know, an even better Arbcom. It's it's a simple matter of fact that, you know, they, they have a difficult, difficult job and that they're never going to be liked. <laughs> and there's not really much that we can do about that. Uh, the second topic, which uh, I can't actually remember what it was, I think it was in response to no, I can't remember what it was. Never mind. Um, but yeah, basically, I mean, Arbcom will will never be um, never be this perfect group of people that we need on the project. Oh, I remember what the second point was. It was to do with uh, whether consensus is broken or not. With consensus on Wikipedia, as um, Dynam has said. Or whether it's Sage Ross, is that it works on an article scale when you have two or three or four editors, a small group of people working together. It doesn't scale, though. That is the trouble that we have. And so when we have these requests for comments on whether it be paid editing or whether it would be the rollback um, tool or anything like that, is that consensus doesn't work with a large group of people. It never really has on Wikipedia, and I don't think it ever will. And this is why we have to, when we're implementing these things, resort to essentially a, a, a democratic style of, um, of decision-making. Even though we refuse to accept that votes aren't used on Wikipedia, it, they obviously are. And I think that building on that and and using democratic methods of decision making should be looked into with detail and and how that can be applied on wikipedia because i don't think that we're going to get anywhere especially as the encyclopedia continues to grow consensus will work less and less as as time goes by that's my point uh, mitch okay um i'm going to respond to what samuel said and that would be um, a lot of the problems with consensus lately has been outside the article space, if it has not been noticed, because that's exactly why people complain about the admission process, which, even though it's said to be a discussion, is more of a consensus slash vote type of thing. It makes no sense because once people grow and once there's people who are just out really to just go after people, as I'm going to keep names out of this, it's going to the point where consensus can be anywhere, and now rational decisions by a, cer- by a certain level of bureaucrats are, are fought over because people don't agree with how they, they felt. And this is becoming a very popular stance, apparently. 
over to it. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the issue of democracy a little bit. I think that Sutton is very right that we sort of have um, elements of democracy. Like when we're voting um, in RFAs or when we're voting at straw polls, which people say aren't really polls, but they then they become uh, polls when people use them as justifications for, oh, there's a majority view on something. Well, consensus isn't supposed to be about numbers, right? It's supposed to be about um argumentation. So we're clearly using the language of democracy and the arguments of democracy on the site a lot, but we don't have any model for democracy. We don't have any process set up for that. And if we as a community want to decide, yes, we want to be a democratic community. We want to take votes on major issues about things like flagged revisions. We should set up a process that enables that to happen fairly. We've never really had discussions about, say, secret ballots. Do we want to vote secretly or do we want to vote out in the open. Those are very different kinds of voting and totally different thing, kinds of results actually come about as a result. And I think it would be very important to have a discussion about what kind of voting do we want to have. I don't think we should have sort of fake democratic voting where we use the results as if they're democratic, but pretend that they're not. That's, I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about when we're talking about um, how we're going to use democracy on Wikipedia. Are we going to use it? Um, right now, we're just sort of in the middle between all of these things. Um, and I think that's what, you know, a group like this can sort of talk about what kinds of um, proposals can we come up with, you know? And if people don't like them, they can say, no, that doesn't work. Didn't mean to step in on you there, Owetowit. Is it? Getting back to a question that Seddon raised about consensus, um, both Awedawid and I, maybe she'll have something to say with this as well, uh, worked very hard on the one proposal that did succeed this spring. Uh, that was the plagiarism proposal. It's now up at guideline status. And um, one thing that I observed, the difference between that and many of the other initiatives that, that failed, the plagiarism guideline um, as a proposal, I put forward, I modeled it very closely after the work I did in 2006, co-authoring the disruptive editing guideline when it was at proposal stage. I think I was one of the, probably the three most active editors in in terms of, of drafting that proposal, although I was somewhat I was more a bit more on a process side than in the actual language of, of plagiarism. And um, the, the general structure of how do you build a consensus for a proposal and make it a guideline? Is this worth it? Um, do enough people agree with this? Um, how do we get the word out? How do we get, we can't get everyone on the same page, but try to get something that uh, a supermajority, if you will, um, are agreeing with and that the most pertinent points are, are satisfied. Um, that was something that worked because this was done in a way that previous proposals that actually succeeded have done. And at around, I mean, this was started actually last summer, but it, it got promoted this spring. Um, during the last, let's say, two months, there has been a spate of process-level proposals, most of which have not been raised in the kind of format or setting that has traditionally been characteristic of successful motions. They're either 
too diffuse or else they uh, appeared to a substantial enough portion of the responders that they may have political overtones that that uh, uh, might not be um, overall the best thing to go with. Um, and what I thought was interesting, and I don't want to say any of the names involved, but that there were several people, there was an incident that had something to do with plagiarism that, that made noise for a few days. And uh, a lot of people did care about plagiarism then, but um, what was interesting is that the people who were working to build the plagiarism proposal toward guideline, there was not as much overlap as you might suspect between that group of people and the group of people who um, who who felt very strongly when there was a specific instance to deal with. And um, one thing I'm worried about is the potential that people wind up thinking that process is broken when um, fewer people, for the most part, are trying the process. Uh, what do it, uh, floor is yours. I think you have every right to rebut this. I actually think that the plagiarism, the history of the plagiarism guideline is is fairly interesting, and I'm not sure I interpret it in quite the same way that you do. Um, the site was around for how many years uh, without a plagiarism guideline? It was a redirect to other things. Right. I mean, it, it didn't have it, to copy. I mean, there was Copyvio, um, which is not quite the same thing. Um, and uh, being that it's a, a site that's written, you know, entirely in text, it takes things from references. It's a severe deficiency, and there has been um, enormous uh, debate on the talk page there about what should be in the guideline and what should not be in the guideline, and it was just sort of stalled. And you requested. Um, an RFC uh, that it be made into a guideline and that was you know going along and you know then the typical debates sort of broke out at the RFC that had been going on the talk page for a while and it looked like oh no you know it might not become a guideline we might still not have a plagiarism you know declaration of any kind on a written encyclopedia which I have to say as a writing teacher is really appalling to me as a personal statement um, and then there was um, a very particular incident at one RFA where it was revealed sort of at the end that um, the person might have plagiarized and it was discovered by many people on the encyclopedia that we didn't really have a real declaration about plagiarism in any of our policies and all of a sudden a lot of people voted on the RFC and they were like we have to have a statement of some kind. It was one particular incident, though, in my opinion, that pushed this over. It was not actually a building up, you know, of argumentation and, you know, many people who voted there were like, well, this is very poorly worded. We don't really quite understand what this guideline is saying, but we have to have a guideline because we have to decide, you know, what's going on with this RFA. 
And so it wasn't really because they, you know, believed in this policy or they, or I'm sorry, this guideline or they understood yeah. it or anything like that. It was because of one particular incident, which is what I, I don't really understand consensus to be. I understand consensus to be sort of this building up process. Those people who were part of the building up process never really came to an agreement. It was because of one particular incident, a whole bunch of other people coming in and just saying, we have to have something. If, if I recall correctly, and I know it's difficult to do this in, in voice, the, um, the RFC already had a, a pretty good solid 80% support before the incident happened. And I don't think that we had an influx of more people responding to the RFC. That had pretty much stalled. But it was the community reaction to that particular incident. I think we could have probably gotten the thing going without the incident if the same people who who were very vocal at the incident um, had, you know, instead come over and responded to the RFC and joined with that. I, I think it did tip it over the edge, but um, my recollection, and I, I, you know, we can go back and, and check that, it is a little bit different in that regard, but Mitch has been waiting for time. I hope you don't mind. No, no, no. I, let's go on with them. Yeah. Sure, sure. Mitch. Sorry, I was having a computer issue for like one second when you called my name. Um. Anyway, I have a response to both both of of these. Um, both Wadowitz's original topic and Derova's current one. I'll go to Wadowitz first. If you if you really think about carefully of how we have no, if we have a democracy system set up, if you look exactly carefully and try to put two and two together, there is a few, it looks more like the, um, we have out of the three branches of government, we have like one actual piece being used in this case. We somewhat have a legislative system, AKA our, our the community making decisions, but it seems like we have a farther outreach into the judicial branch, which includes ARBCOM. And that me and if you think about ARBCOM in the way we elect the voters, accepting that we don't do it the same way the political US political government does it, would be it would be like our our arbitration committee is like the US Supreme Court for our country. And it really uh, eventually it brings up the point that we have a growing democracy system, it just hasn't had all the bugs worked out yet. And well, again, it's only, again, the site's been up for now eight years, and it's up to the point we still haven't gotten all these all these little political jib-jab issues in and out. Now, as response to Darova, which I almost forgot, with plagiarism, especially as a guideline, I am a very, very common person when it comes to I don't know the exact copyright of state law because a lot of the times when I do my road articles there is a lot of there is a lot of technical stuff that no one's going to understand unless there is something if he does, if unless there is something he that they would understand and I know very well that state law is not exactly a very very um, easy thing to understand either but it somewhat gets the point across I am not sure if that's plagiarizing state law but it's plagiarism basically has a very very hard um, idea on um, what exactly defines plagiarism. There's a the definition will basically in the future define what we put what we find in that detail. Anyway, that's at least what I have to say about it.
And uh, Sam, you had a comment? Yeah, a couple things. One, when we talk about democracy, one thing I notice uh, often about Wikipedia is that people uh, know a lot, an awful lot about democratic systems because we all took civics or social studies and we taught how the democratic system works. But uh, most of us have no training in consensus decision making. And there's often an awful lot of uh, techniques that have been known for a long time about how you can do consensus decision making. And uh, a lot of them we haven't tried. And as far as what you were talking about, Dorava, in, in making a decision about plagiarism, I, I think that's it's, it might not be the best example for, for what's going on these days. Um, I, I often wonder, like when an issue comes up, like uh, flag revisions, uh, I went to say, okay, I'm going to find out about this and see what, what I want to do. And I, I looked, and there was this re request for comment or people voting, and I, I, I was bleary-eyed after about a half an hour of trying to read through it. And rather than actually vote, I just gave up on it. And I suspect that I'm not alone, that when issues come up, important, a lot of important issues, that people just say, I can't handle it, because it's just impossible. There's so much noise, and it's very hard to, to figure out what's really going on, what the key issues are, what's important, what's not important. I'm sure I'm not alone in people that just give up on the whole process. So when we do have a request for comment, is that really representative of the community? Is, can we really say that we've heard what's important from the people that we need to hear from? And I'm, I'm not sure that's happening. Seddon had a comment? Ah, yes. Um, what I was going to say is that the, the consensus model that we use on Wikipedia, or at least the, the consensus model that we use in AFD and RFA is supposed to be one which is almost an amalgamation between a typical straw poll vote and then also um, essentially just a simple application of common sense. At least that's how it should theor theoretically work. Um, now, when uh, when we have requests for comment, we don't have this um, this vote side to it, or at least very rarely it typically then has to be separated off and then we have another straw poll or whatever. But I, I, I think that the, the model that we use at AFD and RFA works where we have this amalgamation between sort of voting and common sense. Um, and I think that that needs to be applied in other areas on the, on the project. Um, having, you know, a hundred people list their full opinion, it, it does become unreadable, uh, you know, as has been said. So that, I, th I think that we need to go to this sort of amalgamation, really. But that's my... And what would have a follow-up? Um, yeah, just listening to what uh, Sam is saying, I think it's so important for us to essentially brainstorm all the possibilities that there are for ways to make these large-scale decisions uh, on Wikipedia. I mean, democracy is only one of them, right? He's talking about another option, uh, another way of doing consensus. There must be many more. And I think the idea is also we're on, you know, a worldwide online encyclopedia. This is, you know, a, an online community. There must be more than even 
that have already been thought of like in the world already. Essentially, we can come up with our own, you know, we can generate a new way of doing, you know, governance in an online community. And I think it's really important for us to say we can invent our own, we can come up with our own, but we've never really thought much about it um, yet um, on the on the encyclopedia. And I think it would be um, this is a good time, you know, I think we, we have a moment where we're saying things aren't quite working right. This is a time where we can say, let's make them work right. Let's think about, you know, what we want to be important in our in our uh, decision making. And someone was talking about how a lot of times um, decisions are made where a lot of people are not included and the people who are discussing are not representative of the community. And I think this is actually something we really should think about a lot. Um, we were talking in one of our discussions the other day about how they were lengthening the AFD process from five days to seven days. And one of the reasons for that was to include weekend editors. I think it's really important to think about every member of the community being included. And we don't want to just include people who edit, you know, eight hours every day. We want to include people who edit once a week. And are we including those people in the kinds of discussions that we're having about changing the encyclopedia? This discussion about this advisory council has been going on for just a few days. People who don't edit every day might not even know it's been going on yet. And I think it's really important that every kind of editor in Wikipedia is going to be considered in our sort of revamping of an, you know, any sort of sort of governance, right, in any way or the a way that we make decisions. And the way that we, you know, sort of redo that should take into account all those kinds of editors. And Sam, you had a comment? Yeah, uh, you know, getting Talking about decision making, uh, uh, I have a, a background in design, and uh, somebody was also um, at the council was talking about management. Both design, uh, the design field and management field, use a creative problem-solving methodology that uh, we very rarely apply in Wikipedia. Uh, we're often talking about proposals and solutions when we've never even defined the problem and done analysis behind it when we haven't come up with alternatives and, and come up with lists of criteria to evaluate all the alternatives we come up with. And this, these things don't happen in a vacuum. You can't put up a request for comment and expect hundreds of people to suddenly organize themselves into a, a procedure that's going to make, make sense. So I, I, I definitely agree with uh, a lot of what we have to think about all the different ways we can use the wiki to organize the community and not just rely on what we've been doing for the last six years because you know, it, it doesn't work lots of times. Buzz Hedda, you had a uh, question or a comment? Uh, yeah, just, just as a closer, um, but I think I found the answer in our chat room wondering who's going to Wikimania 2009 and it would definitely be an ideal thing to discuss in that room face to face with folks who have thought about this problem in other communities too. So I've got one panel talking about the demographic decline of Wikipedia and maybe this is something we can work into that panel um, because there was a panel, well, a session uh, at one of the Wikimanias does, does consensus scale and we should look back at that to see what types of uh, things people said about that. Um, and one last thing, at the prodding of Sage, I will uh, put forth my wacky idea of how we outreach to galleries, libraries, archives, and museums better. And my idea was actually, so why not outreach to existing, probably medium to smaller size glam outlets or outfits 
and uh, you know, do what Brewster Kale at the Internet Archive has. He's got this incredible digitizing facility in his uh, facility near San Francisco with uh, you know Nikon cameras taking pictures of you know PD works and putting them out into the um, onto the Internet Archive. So why not outfit a Wikimedia van and we drive to different historical societies and historical archives and say, hey, you may not have the resources to digitize all these works that are you know in your houses, whatever, but if you're willing, uh, we've got a digitizing team. We've got volunteers on the net, you know, folks like Udorova who do a lot of restoration work. And once we put these raw works into the Wikimedia Commons, we'll have people come around, come around and either work with the folks at the uh, museums and libraries to restore or to uh, to you know, put them into collections online that they could never afford to do on their own, and this is something that you could get a grant for. You you get this this big truck or a big bus, and you put experts on there. You you get Wikimedians to donate a month or two weeks of vacation time to to uh, meet the truck and to help out in these things. And I think that's uh, it's more of a wacky idea, but I think this is something the foundation could try to do to facilitate to bring the Wikimedia movement on rather than just resting as this kind of passive website where where uh, if someone um, has the you know online chops to go there and contribute stuff they can do it let's take the digitizing stuff and the expertise on the road out to the glam outfits and and uh, after these success stories are reported then you'll have other larger outfits who are you know less threatened by this whole idea of digitizing works and putting it out there one final comment from Brett yeah, um, just going on from what Sam was saying about design and defining the actual problem. Being in the programming industry, you actually see this a lot where you'll get code monkeys who can write code, but it actually takes the design to make it beautiful. And I was just looking at the RFC on the Advisory Council. Um, its opening line is so... I've created this page so people can express their views and that's all you're going to get. You're going to get views. You're not going to get solutions. You're not going to get, you know, alternative paths. You're just going to get what people's two cents worth. And of course, there's about 28 of them on there now. Um, so yeah, that's just something I wanted to add. All right, then wrapping things up, um, you have an option to add a final word as you say farewell. Otherwise, just your name and uh, say goodbye. Uh, Mitch, um, do you have a final word for us? Yeah, not much. Just come to the New York City um, Wiki Conference, July 25th, 2026. We have a fun time. It's in New York City. It's in Vanderbilt Hall of NYU School of Law. Andrew? It's me, Falsetto, here. Thank you, Darova, and the rest of you Wiki Voices folks for doing this joint podcast. I enjoyed it a lot. And for anyone who's going to make it to Buenos Aires, we've got, well, at least I'm helping out with two sessions, and I definitely welcome any help or ideas on one, a session on the demographic decline of Wikipedia. What does it mean, and what do, can we do about the community? And the other one is covering the Wikipedia community, which is exactly what we're doing here. Like, how do folks like Sage Ross and uh, and uh, Jerova and you folks? How do you find stories? How do you report on the community in a way that is both neutral but uh, passionate at the same time? And uh, we're going to have Noam Cohen from New York Times on that panel as well. So, uh, send me any ideas you might have. Okay, a wit. Well, I was reminded by someone today actually that with the 
uh, framers of the American Constitution met, they met in secret because they were so afraid of what people would say about what they were doing. <laughs> Um, and I think it would be actually really amazing if this um, council could do everything that it wanted to do completely in the open and it could present proposals to the community and the community could debate them, throw some of them out, accept some of them, and that could all be done without any secrecy at all. I think that that would show an amazing tolerance by people on the community um, in a way that would be a complete juxtaposition to something like that. And so that's what I wanted to say. And Brett? Yeah, um, I've enjoyed talking with you fine people and there's definitely two big issues that we've discussed today and it will be interesting to see how they pan out. Thanks for your time. Dana Man? Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Um, and I, I guess I just want to say, let's not let this uh, this uh, discussion about governance end here. I think too often, these discussions just kind of stop. It's a big graveyard of uh, Wikipedia proposals somewhere that uh, get thrown out. And I think we should uh, keep at it until we get it right this time. So with that, I'll say goodbye. Thank you. Peter? Hi, thanks all for coming. It's been really enjoyable. Sorry I didn't say much, but uh, I really enjoyed listening to you all. Sage? Likewise, thanks. Um, maybe I said too much, but I enjoyed it too. Samuel? I'm glad I could be here and uh, I hope people will uh, give the council a chance before you, you uh, burn the walls down and uh, maybe we'll come up with something of value and uh, I hope people will contribute in a positive way. Seddon? Yeah, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming tonight. And uh, if anyone listening to this has some spare time, then the mediation cabal could really do some help or need some help with uh, some uh, people mediating cases for us. Thanks. Tucker, would you like to say farewell? Absolutely. I'll help if I turn the mute button off. <laughs> just like to say that definitely we've had some great discussions here, and I'll be back as much as Arnold Schwarzenegger likes to say. And we're spiel checkers. Hi, yes, um, I've enjoyed it. I just wanted to say one last thing on the, the art side of things. Um, interesting idea about the truck, but I think you can achieve far more with the, the technology everyone carries around with them. If you just lay on coffee and a room and in the museum and, and invite everyone in that area, and as the, um, the, the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum, found in London, an awful lot of people with some very high-powered computer equipment and cameras and computers will turn up. And if you can get them organized by letting them sit in one place, um, you can you can achieve quite a lot. Wayne Hockey? Thanks for the session. Sorry I haven't said much, but it's been fun listening and uh, very interesting, very informative. And I want to thank everybody for coming, uh, especially those of you who who are appointed to this committee and know how strongly I oppose it. I think that in the big picture, the moving forward with building um, positive uh, relationships with GLAM institutions is very important. Um, and I'd like to encourage people, even if you don't already know how to use Photoshop or GIMP, which is a uh, an open source version of that, uh, talk to me. Because if you don't already know this work, I'll teach it to you. And if you know people, um, have connections at uh, GLAM institutions, I want to talk to you. And, and I want to build these kinds of synergies. I want to make it happen with uh, the people and the institutions that are close to you. Uh, I also need more people doing this, so come on over. Um, you don't have to bring a whole lot to the table. It's not too hard to get started.
Thank you very much. And uh, thank you very much to um, Wikipedia Weekly for joining us collaboratively in this. Absolutely. My it's pleasure. been great to be it's here. Fun.